We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 128. We've moved into a new year. It's the 2nd of January 2018. The Velvet Glove is back. Scott, <laughs> how was your Christmas and New Year? Uh, Christmas was fine, except I fell down the stairs and broke my foot. So, <laughs> so yes. I, I, can't, I couldn't even claim that I was drunk at the time because I was completely sober. Anyway, it is what it yep. is. So I uh, took myself up to the hospital and got fitted for casts and all that sort of stuff. So now I'm hobbling around on uh, two legs at home. Anyway. Very good. So, yeah, um, absolutely. so you're working from home a fair bit, and I, am, yeah. uh, uh, I sent you my thoughts and prayers, and the listeners probably are as well. And hopefully, they're working. <laughs> yes, actually, thank you, thank you everyone for your thoughts and prayers. But you know what you can do with them. <laughs> actually, you know, long-term listeners will recall Scott that we did that episode where there was a uh, an examination of thoughts and prayers and whether they actually work, and they had people you know, a control group and people who were getting thoughts and prayers and people who knew they were getting thoughts and prayers. And the people who were getting thoughts and prayers actually performed worse in their recovery from illnesses. And <laughs> do you remember that topic? I do remember that, yeah. That was quite a while yeah. ago, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's, prob- it's probably quite mean of me to send you <laughs> thoughts and prayers. <laughs> yeah, you should have just ignored everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, really keen listeners might be uh, tempted to go onto the website right now and search, you know, thoughts and prayers and try and find that episode. We've got a little problem on the website at the moment, Scott. It's yeah. it's being moved across to a new server and currently a lot of the links aren't working. So, okay. dear listener, just bear with us. If, uh, if there's a problem over the next few days or weeks, just while we're sorting it out, um, our friend of the program, Sean, is... is fixing things up for us, and hopefully all the links and things will be working in a little while. But at the moment, they're not. So anyway, we'll, we'll eventually get there. So, um, and I'd right, like to Scott. say a big thank you to Sean because he is, yeah. a, he is a great supporter of the podcast. So thank he you is. very much, Sean. Yeah. Good on you, Sean. So, um, okay. So, uh, Scott, first uh, topic is, uh, you know, I can recall sort of a year or two ago, you seemed to be quite a, a bit of a fan of Scott Morrison. You, th- you thought he was headed for great things, didn't you? I did think he was headed for great things. I knew he had, I knew he had the Christian thing tucked in his sleeve and that sort of stuff. But um, he's taken leave of his senses and he's come out to play a leading role in, uh, in the fight to protect religious freedom. Scott Morrison says he will fight back against discrimination and mockery of Christians and other religious groups in 2018 in comments that position him as one of the leading religious conservatives in the Turnbull government. ScoMo, I don't know what the hell you're smoking, mate, but it's not going to work. You know, it's really ridiculous that you've gone this far. You know, and he's he's beating up on the... um, Philip Ruddock review, which is coming up at some stage this year and that sort of thing. I think it's got a report by March, doesn't it? Something like that. I think yeah, if you want to make a, a submission, it's got to be by the end of this month, January, yeah. and so yeah, a it's, report it's in a March. Very, it's a very quick inquiry. Anyway. Look, I think, Scott, 
this is just a play by a guy who's not particularly bright, mm. who, but who is no doubt very ambitious mm. and looking to garner support within his parliamentary colleagues and looked around and thought, well, I'll, I'll try and get the religious vote here. And well, that really doesn't surprise me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, he's promised to play a, re- a leading role, as you said, and mm. um, he's not happy about Christianity being mocked. He said, um, it all starts when you allow religious freedoms to be eroded Mockery to be made of your faith or your religious festivals. It always starts innocently and it's always said as just a joke, just like most discrimination does. And I'm going to call that out. With what I've seen happening in the last year, I've just taken the decision more recently, I'm just not going to put up with that anymore. Um, Where I think people are being offensive to religion in this country... Whichever religion that might be, but particularly the one I and many other Christians subscribe to, well, we will just call it out and we will demand the same respect that people should provide to all religions. So we expect a phone call from him, Scott, well, about that's our what podcast. I was just thinking that um, <laughs> I was expecting a phone call from him too because, um, you know, no doubt he will say that whatever we're saying is offensive which is ridiculous because all we're doing is just we, we take the principal tenets of the religious faith and put it out there and say, well, this is what you believe, don't you? Hmm. Hmm. Anyway. We do a bit of mockery along the way. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, There's, it's, it's, all, it's all good-natured mockery, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people can mock atheists if they like. Go for it. Exactly. But, yeah. I, I, you know, if that's the position he's going to take, where... And here's the critical thing. He said that... Um, where I think people are being offensive to religion in this country, whichever religion that might be. Well, Scott, I, uh, during this holiday, made a trip down to Melbourne and saw the Book of Mormon. And how was it? Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> God, it was good. Is it coming Dear north listener, or not? Uh, I think it's going to... I don't think they've announced it yet, but I think it's finished in Melbourne now and they'll have a few months break and they'll probably end up in Sydney at some stage and okay. who knows if it'll ever make it to Brisbane. But yeah. uh, it's worth a trip down to, if you don't live in those cities, you know, whatever city's hosting it, it's worth a weekend trip down to see a show and do a bit of sightseeing and whatever. Like, absolutely, really, really good show. Very funny. Really good tunes. Like, it's, you know, a musical and the tunes are good. And... Holy smokes, it does not um, back down on uh, taking the mickey out of Mormons. Like, it really goes for them and for just the notion of God in general. And if Scott Morrison is claiming that he's going to call out mockery of Christianity and, in theory, Mormons are a branch of Christianity, that sort of fan fiction version... (laughs) (laughs) as we've discussed before. You know, I haven't heard him complaining about the Book of Mormon on, on show in Melbourne. And, you know, if you're worried about mockery in Australia at the moment of religions, that would have been your first port of call for complaining, I think. so. One would have thought so, but clearly he's, um, he's taken... I think he's taken aim at the um, criticism of a particular brand of Christianity, his... 
And that is what he's really offended by, and that's what he's trying to stop. Yeah, I think he's sort of trying to create a war on Christmas in the lead-up mm. to Christmas. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so a bit of a leadership attempt by him to appeal to the conservative Christian element in his um, you know, parliamentary colleagues and... Uh, and um, I think, hopefully, it's not going to work. But you never know. There's enough of them in there that might it might be a good tactical ploy. Who knows? We'll see. It so. could work for him, but I doubt it. Anyway, we mm. shall see. Yeah. Just on that score, the actual the Mormon Church, uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, they've actually taken the whole Book of Mormon thing in good spirit, you'd have to say to them. They haven't protested and they haven't been up in arms about the mockery of their religion and... And they've sort of laughed along with it as well and mm. even used it to advertise their faith and have you know, paid for advertising in, in programs and things like that. So, um, you know, it just goes to show just because you've been mocked, it doesn't mean you have to take great offence and exactly. up and down mm. about it. Mm. Mm. So, uh, so that's that. Just back to, um, uh, Scott, this religious freedom panel and Ruddock has got me really worried. So um, our friends from Freedom for Faith uh, (laughs) sent an email out and they are gathering their resources and they're preparing to write their submission and uh, they're hoping that theirs will be the sort of um, ultimate... um, expose of what the conservative Christian view is and that others will come on board and support them. So they're calling for donations if anyone wants to help. But, you know, they've just got resources there, Scott. They'll put in a massive submission. Absolutely they will, yeah. And guys like Scott Morrison are keen to show their conservative credentials and will support whatever harebrained schemes these guys propose in their submission. So it's Mm. a worry. I'm just... I hope secular forces are doing something. So, hey, you know, um, you know how we now? Did you hear about our petition, Scott? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and yeah. I, I did sign up to it and that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So, dear listener, I mean, you can't click it on at the moment because our website's having problems. But, um, <laughs> yeah, our petition got up. I think it was 140, 150 people, something like that, mm. calling for a secular voice on the panel. Of course, no response from anybody on that. But at least it was easy enough to do, and we feel better having done it. I got a um, response from my local member because I wrote to my local member and the PM and said, you've got to put a secular voice on this thing. Yep. And I got a response from my local member and it was basically just rehashing what had been announced, you know, which was absolutely ridiculous. But anyway, at least he responded. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the other thing about this panel, um, Scott, is it's only two years since the Australian Law Reform Commission did a study on this particular area and provided a report. Which the government then sat on for two years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's an entire chapter which discusses the source and rationale for freedom of religion in Australian law, how this freedom is protected from statutory encroachment, and when laws that interfere with freedom of religion may be justified. So two years ago... Australian Law Reform Commission produced a report that addressed all these things. Funnily enough, said there is no major problem with encroachment of freedom of religion. So no issue is what it concluded. Two years later, Turnbull 
you know, just a thought bubble enters his head and whammo, we've got another panel. So oh, just all the other things they could be doing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Scott, did you ever read uh, the book Fahrenheit 451 in your younger days? No, I never did, but I'm considering reading it after reading this next article. Oh, you weren't a science fiction sort of reader? Uh, no, I wasn't. I've only okay. really started reading in the last 10 years, I suppose. So prior to that, it was always TV or something like that. So, uh, Okay. No, I can remember reading it. And um, by um, Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. And it was very f- sort of, I don't know, it seemed to me that most teenage boys my age probably read Fahrenheit 451 at some stage. And um, d- dear listener, if you're not familiar with it, um, it's... Um, well, here's an article from a guy uh, talking about the book and its its wider implications. And uh, the premise of the book is that firefighters in this dystopian future are not concerned with fighting fires. They um, What they do is they find books and burn books. And the title of the book comes from the statement that... Uh, at, at, at 451 degrees Fahrenheit, that's the temperature at which a book will burn. I don't know if that's true or not. but mm. um, And it, you know, it's got various characters, of course, and one of them is a fireman who decides, who starts to question why they're doing it. Um, anyway, just uh, quoting a few bits from this article, uh, and it says, um, if you'd asked me why on earth they did that, I would have answered just as confidently because a tyrannical government wanted them to. And he says here, there is a trend afoot to conveniently remember the works of authors like Ray Bradbury and Aldous Huxley as warnings against distant totalitarianism and control. But this only scratches the surface of what these books are about. And uh, uh, he goes on a bit further and then he says, going back to the book, I found myself rereading it recently. It begins with Guy Montag burning a house that contains books. Why? How did it come to be that firemen burned books instead of putting out fires as they always had? The firemen had been doing it for so long they had no idea. Most of them had never even read a book except one fireman, Captain Beatty, who has been around long enough to remember what life was like before. And as Montag begins to doubt his profession, he's subjected to a speech from Beatty. In it, Beatty explains that it wasn't the government that decided that books were a threat. It was his fellow citizens. Quote, it didn't come from the government down. There was no dictum, no declaration, no censorship to start with. In fact, it was something rather simple, something that should sound very familiar It was a desire not to offend, an earnest notion to literally have everyone made equal. And it's at the end of the speech that we get the killer passage. Quote, You must understand our civilization is so vast that we can't have our minorities upset and stirred. Ask yourself, what do we want in this country above all? People want to be happy, isn't that right? Coloured people don't like little black Sambo. Burn it. White people don't feel good about Uncle Tom's cabin. Burn it. Somebody's written a book on tobacco and cancer of the lungs. The cigarette people are weeping. Burn the book. Serenity, Montag. Peace, Montag. Take your fight outside, better yet, to the incinerator. I thought that was really interesting, Scott, because if you had asked me what the book was about, I would have said it was about the government 
forcing people to burn books. But in fact, it came from the people themselves. And that's, you know, with college... And the article goes on to say, you know, with college students um, and, and it's the public who are saying... Um, Huckleberry Finn and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and books like this should not be in our schools. This is actually coming from the general public and it's a sort of a bottom-up thing that's happening rather than a top-down, which I hadn't really thought about, but rings true to me. Yeah, absolutely. um, It is very good. I mean, there's one little quote here in the article that I thought was uh, worthwhile. There is a wonderful quote from Epic. Epictetus, um, that I think of every time I see someone get terribly upset about one of these things. I try to think about it when I get upset about anything. If someone succeeds in provoking you, realise that your mind is complicit in the provocation. Which I thought made a hell of a lot of sense. Good advice for Scott Morrison. If someone succeeds in provoking you, realise that your mind is complicit in the provocation. And somebody 1,900 years ago worked that out. Scamo. Yeah. So, um, uh, yes. So, And he probably did it without knowledge of the Christian faith, too. Yes, yes. Um, Other place in the article, it says that uh, the 50th anniversary edition, Bradbury, the author, included a short afterword um, where he gave his thoughts on the current culture and said there's more than one way to burn a book and the world is full of people running around with lit matches. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, there's a saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. When it comes to censorship, one might say that the road to thought and speech control is paved by people trying to protect other people's feelings. Mm, Very good. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, that was a good article. I like that one, and I recommend Fahrenheit 451 as a good read. Meanwhile, Scott... Um, Shoppies Union, we've talked about in the past that controlled by this is Catholic influence. Yeah. So with all the things people are worried about in terms of identity and all the rest of it, and some really key things are happening in this Australian society, Scott, and nobody's paying any attention to it. So this article, dear listener, is... Bullworths have have come to an arrangement with the um, the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, uh, the Shoppies Union, about an employment agreement. And uh, these things you have to get approved with some sort of government organisation. Who is it? Uh, Fair Work Australia. Yeah, thank you, Scott. And. The agreement, dear listener, they have managed to get a a non-disclosure so that it's not possible for us to know exactly what wage rate has been agreed to between Woolworths and the union. You can't find out. So in this article, they're sort of gleaning bits and pieces from uh, various sources, but... Um, they've struck an extraordinary secret deal to hide from public scrutiny the pay rates. Now, this is for a new type of 
supermarket worker for Woolworths. So Woolworths are opening what they're calling dark stores, which uh, will be internet-only warehouses to, um, as part of their bid to, to have to fight with Amazon, who's now entered the country. So the suspicion is that people working in these dark stores under this agreement will be paid $3,000 a year less than a worker in a regular Woolworths store. Scott, it's appalling that this can be held and kept secretive. And um, uh, it was approved, the secrecy, because Woolworths argued that it was, uh, you know, they needed it to be confidential because of commercial inconfidence reasons that they didn't want their competitors knowing what deal they'd struck. And the Fair Work Commission agreed to this. I know. It is absolutely criminal. And do you know what I find really sickening about this is this was negotiated with a union. Yep. You would expect this kind of outcome to happen if the guys weren't covered by a union or anything like that, but they were negotiated... It was negotiated by a union on their behalf. Now, there is a line in here somewhere that goes to the... um, I forget where it is. I can't find it. It's said that um, the SDA union is indebted to Woolworths for finding them new members every year. Ah, yep. Now, that looks like it's, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, because that's what it looks and smells like. Because there's no other reason for this other than incompetence on the part of the unions. It's, I'd be very keen to hear their justification for this. Um, I can't imagine one if you've got the employee's best interests at heart. It's, it's hard exactly. to come it's, up with a scenario it's where bloody this criminal. is in their interest. Yeah. Um, one of the things with that shopkeeper's union is a lot of the members are sort of temporary. They come in and out and uh, don't necessarily understand their rights that well. So it's a union with... Uh, high um, numbers of membership, but the actual members themselves don't take much interest in union affairs. Mm. Um, yes. Uh, emails obtained from Fair Work files show that Woolworths executive Moro Pisegna told Fair Work that Woolworths needed confidentiality due to the unique customer offering the business will be providing in effect, the first of its type within Australia. Well, I'm sorry, but operating a warehouse unique, to send goods out... It's not a unique <laughs> customer offering. It is a bloody warehouse that's got an internet internet at the front end on it. It yeah. makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, University of Adelaide Law Professor Andrew Stewart said he had never come across an agreement where the wage rates were not published. He described it as extraordinary. He said the Fair Work Act, under it, there's an obligation for enterprise agreements to be published. Clearly, that includes the wage rates in the agreement. Mm. These are the things we have to worry about. Um, Not worry about identity and stuff. Exactly. Whether people being paid enough. Well, you know, you've got it here. It's it's on the last... uh Two-thirds of the way down the last page, Mr Cullinan mm. said documents on file indicate workers in dark stores would be paid about $1.50 an hour less than in ordinary supermarket. This would cost a mm. full-time worker about 3000 bucks a year. Mm. Now, Woolworths is not 
an idiot company. It does not invest in something that it can't make a dollar out of. Mm. So they wouldn't be... The difference between profitability and loss-making for this venture, if it's more, if it's 3000 bucks a head, no, nah, they wouldn't do it. You know, it's absolutely criminal that... That they've done that they've done this you know it, it's and you know i honestly think that they've got to take a long hard look at how close the union is to the employers because this is not the first time the sda has been called up for its um mm. positions and they have been they have been uh they have been the subject to this sort of heat before so it's a really worrying thing where an actual group is supposed to be looking after the members' interests, it just doesn't seem that that's the case. Exactly. If they've struck a deal where they actually get paid less and they've kept it secretive. So, mm. uh, Scott, that is a worry. Um, uh, oh, some statistics have come out. Apple is doing new statistics on podcasts. And um, for people who use the, the Apple app, and have got the latest operating system, they've been able to tell uh, not only the number of downloads, but also how long people actually listen to a podcast. Oh, okay. Mm. And oh, really? um, yeah, and how much do they charge for that information? <laughs> no, it's all no, it's all free at this Is point. That right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and as I said, it's limited to people using the podcast app on the latest iOS operating system, but um, on this sort of that small sample, people listen to this podcast sort of 90, 95%, sometimes over 100%, where people must be re-listening to bits, Scott. So we've got a nice sort of a good level of people actually who, who listen to the podcast, who listen to the whole thing, which is... Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, it's good to know. Dear listener... Are you subscribing to this podcast? Because that's the easiest way. Then it'll automatically appear in your app. And uh, I know some people out there sort of rely on the Facebook sort of post and then just click on the link and stream it directly. But if you fire up your app and subscribe, then it'll always be there. So give that a go. Look, there's a link on the website as to how to do that, but uh, hopefully that'll be working soon. <laughs> so yeah, so subscribe. If you're just relying on the Facebook for you know notification, uh, not good enough. Subscribe. While we're at it, uh, thanks to our uh, patrons, uh, Ayami, James, Selena, Brett, Sean, of course, Alex, uh, new patron Alison. Good on you, Alison. Wayno, Jason, Grant, John, Craig, and Janelle. Thanks, guys, for. For supporting us, that's great. Uh, right, um, yeah, what's that one? Oh, Scott, we were talking about this just before we started recording, and you were intrigued by the statistics on elderly suicide. Yeah, it was really quite frightening, wasn't it? That you had two a week were topping themselves. Yeah, so this is an article by Chris Fotinopoulos. Um, and he says, uh, you know, talking about assisted dying and all that sort of stuff, but part of the statistics he gave was that um, looking at coroner's reports and octogenarians killing themselves at the rate of two per week, usually by tying a noose around their neck, taking a broken glass to their throat, 
ingesting a stockpile of prescribed drugs or succumbing to poisonous fumes when faced with the prospect of going to an aged care facility. And um, for men aged 85 and older, suicide at the rate of almost 40 in every 100,000, partly due to terminal and incurable illnesses. So for those people who are against assisted dying, you have to acknowledge that people are taking their own lives anyway. Exactly. And that is the thing that I find ridiculous about those that are opposed to assisted dying, is that people are already opting out anyway. They are leaving this planet and they are leaving in um, horrific circumstances. Yeah. You know, um, carbon monoxide poisoning is probably the the nicest way to go, but even that's not really all that pleasant, you know. Mm. Mm. It's really ridiculous. So anyway, that was quite high statistics. Mm. Uh, Scott, um, many people looking at our current crop of politicians would have felt, gosh, it's hard to vote for any of them. But voting in Australia is compulsory under the Electoral Act. And uh, if you don't vote, you get a penalty notice. And there's four exceptions uh, where you won't get the penalty notice. The first one is if you're dead. That's fair enough. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you're absent from Australia on polling day, if you're ineligible to vote, or if you have a valid and sufficient reason for failing to vote. And... There's a character in... Um, New South uh, Wales, wasn't it? Is he? Is that where he is? Um, yeah, a man won his legal battle in New South Wales court after being prosecuted for failing to vote in the 2016 federal election, hmm. saying voting would have left him feeling morally corrupt. Hmm. So he, he sold a story to the local magistrate um, that, uh, that, yeah, he felt very strongly about it, that it would be morally corrupt to vote for any of them. And the magistrate said, well, fair enough. That's an honestly held belief and you don't have to pay the penalty. It's so. not a religious belief that, that he objected to voting, it, but it is a strongly held moral conviction, wasn't it? Yes, that's right, yeah. which was kind of devout but not religious. But, uh, honestly and firmly held uh, feeling of... of um, What's the word? Moral corruption, if he was to vote. So, there you go. That might be an option for us in the future, as the options of (laughs) voting get harder and harder. Mm. Uh, Scott, um, we, many, many moons ago, tried to... I think I tried to give an explanation of the South Australian power crisis and how it happened. And uh, yeah, I don't quite remember that. Oh, hang on a minute. I, I think I might have given a pretty poor explanation, but a mate of mine works in an area where he had quite good knowledge of it, and he gave me a bit of a rundown of it, of, of how that blackout occurred in South Australia. And, um, Scott, here's, here's, the, um, here's how it happened in a nutshell. Okay, I'll sit uh, back and listen. Yeah, hit, sit back and listen. So this is the 28th of September 2016, there was a couple of uh, tornadoes in South Australia with high winds which uh, damaged a transmission line. And what that did was it caused uh, three transmission lines to trip and there were a sequence of faults in quick succession um, which resulted in six voltage dips. So... High winds, blows down transmission lines and 
um, uh, six voltage dips occurred as a result. What happens with that sort of voltage change is the, uh, the wind farms with the wind turbines, they had an inbuilt um, safety feature, which was if they detected six voltage dips within a two-minute period, then they would automatically shut down. And, Scott, nobody knew this. Nobody had any idea. <laughs> or at least no one's admitting to it. But, um, but yeah, these, these um, wind farm turbines had this safety feature that um, said, oh, if there's six fluctuations in voltage, we'll just shut down. So when they shut down, that then put enormous pressure on the, the interconnector with Victoria such that it had to shut down. And then when it shut down, the remaining local South Australian um, power generators couldn't supply sufficiently for the state and for safety reasons, they had to shut down. So had, had the wind farms not had this trigger in them that... Uh, Essentially, oh, six six voltage jumps. We're shutting down. Things might have been okay, um, but yeah, nobody knew about it not in, the, in the power system. That's and, really interesting that they didn't have any. Because I found it really yeah. ridiculous that you know because a state was so reliant on wind power, yeah. how the hell a storm would stop the wind power from generating electricity? Wouldn't it have increased the electricity being generated? But anyway, there you go. There's Ooh. the explanation. The other thing that my friend said, I don't know if it's in this report or not, but he said that um, they then contacted the manufacturers in Europe, I think it's France or Germany or whatever, and said, guys, you know, that caused us a big problem. Um, You know, is there any way you can change that so that it doesn't shut down after six voltage jumps? And they said, oh, sure, no problem. Tap, 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 tap on the computer and said, okay, it's all done. (laughs) was that simple it was that simple that they did it remotely from europe in two minutes or something and and uh, all good now they went shut down <laughs> uh, so there you go and and of course the battery is there now which is to provide a buffer because when these things happen like say for example they weren't able to fix that wind farm shutting down after six voltage jumps and it shut down, the battery could kick in and give them enough leeway to sort of shut down parts of the system so that they just gives them time to shut things down and, and go to alternative arrangements. So, um, so anyway, I thought that was quite interesting about um, the South Australian power crisis that uh, yeah, had this inbuilt system that nobody knew about and it was uh, fixed within moments. Yeah. Oh, it is very interesting. Some... Uh, I don't understand how the whole thing works, but that's given me some idea of how it works, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Scott, uh, Kenyan atheists. <laughs> they, they've, had, they've come up with an idea, been criticised for it, but it's an idea anyway. Uh, what they've done is that um, 
they're rewarding kids who fail their religious studies exams. <laughs> they're, aff- they're offering a cash prize equivalent to $100 US to students who achieve the lowest scores in their religious studies uh, certificate, Kenya Certificate of Secondary Education exams. So it's the, the test you need to get into college. So. so do you need to pass the religious part of the exams to get into your college, do you? Pr- presumably not. One would think that you can still get in based on the scores in your other subjects. So, okay. uh, yeah. Mm. Well, well, I'd hope so. I hate people aren't forsaking a place in college just for a hundred dollar prize from the Kenyan Atheist Society. Well, one would hope not. Yeah. Anyway, the writer of the article criticised them and said, "Well, really, you know, you should award a prize to the person who gets the highest score on the exam, but still proudly proclaims to believe none of it." So. That was fair enough as well. So, Ooh. anyway, that's what one uh, atheist group is doing in Kenya. Scott, it's been a while since we've had our um, you know, sportsmen who are <laughs> performing poorly, or you know, religious religious sportsmen is a particular gripe of mine, Scott. So it's uh, it's time for our you cannot be curious moment. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. Yes, you cannot be curious. He's in town at the moment, Scott. He's in Brisbane. Who is? Ah, uh, okay. Uh, oh, curious is. Yeah, oh, okay. he's going to be playing tennis at the Brisbane International. So now, are you going to that? I am going. Uh, and you're going I'm... to sue if he walks off the court, aren't you? I, I uh, you remembered, Scott. Yes. <laughs> I'm going on Saturday. I'm seeing a day. He's unlikely to be in the day session because he'd, uh, he'd be in the night session, I would have thought, if he's on that okay. day. And, uh, but, yeah, if he tanks and walks off, um, spits the dummy uh, and doesn't try, then, yeah, I'm going to sue for my money back. So um, with all those caveats, that's my promise to you, dear listener. <laughs> anyway, this particular sportsman is uh, a religious nutter and I just came across this one because of my subscription to Eternity magazine is Aaron Badley, the golfer. Uh, He's 100% sure that his best golf is ahead of him after surviving several fallow years when he had to cling on to his faith in God's promises. Um, He's had a couple of lean lean years, but he's convinced that God wants him to be a successful golfer, so he's continuing. And he revealed he meets every week with... Fellowship and Bible study, or sorry, for fellowship and Bible study with other Christian golfers on the tour, such as Tom Lehman, Ben Crane, and Bubba Watson. Uh, We meet on a Tuesday night at a hotel or house and have a night of fellowship and study God's word, he said. Um, We would get between 10 and 40 turn up typically, depending on the event. It's a great time with the guys, some wives and people involved with the tour. A couple of teachers travel basically each week and teach us. Right now we're going through the book of John. The PGA Tour has had an official chaplain who travels to each tournament and hosts Bible studies for the players and caddies for more than 30 years. (sighs) He tells Eternity Magazine his relationship with Jesus and trust in his plan for his life were the crucial factors in keeping him playing. Uh, I know this is the arena God has called me to and I'll continue to play golf until he tells me it's time to do something different. Blah, blah, blah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, he's, <laughs> I don't know what to say other than, you know, that's lovely. Thanks very much, badly. But, um, yeah, good luck just, with that. Yeah, you know, it's just how the other half live. Anyway, uh, we'll finish off with... I'm going to award a point against you, Mr McEnroe. I won't be following Aaron Baddeley too much. No. Uh, okay, that's that. Matt, um, uh, now this is an article from the National Secular Society, I think, in the UK. Uh, yes, they are in the UK. I do yeah. subscribe to them on Facebook and I do read everything that they do send through, so they're yeah, very good. Yes. They are. They are good, yeah. Mm. They've come up with one um, talking about... Beware of the drip drip of religious exemptions. And uh, they're talking here. The latest submission to religious demands came this week when a popular theme park lifted its ban on Sikh visitors wearing ceremonial swords. Now, quite understandably, this theme park had a policy of not allowing weapons or other articles which might cause injury in the park. Clearly, the kirpan, or ceremonial sword, worn by a small proportion of Sikhs, falls foul of this policy. However, when faced with accusations of religious discrimination after they refused to allow a Sikh man to carry a sword into a children's party at the theme park, they've backed down. Following in-depth consultation with Sikh elders, the theme park backtracked and will now allow Sikhs to bring in ceremonial daggers provided they are no more than six inches long. This is despite a report which confirmed that wearing of a sheathed dagger posed a viable compromise to safety whilst on a ride. And it says here, you know those kids, you know how kids have shoes with like a roller skate inserted in them, Scott? Yeah, just in the back of the heel, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I think they're called a wheelie shoe. And this writer of this article makes the point that we now have a situation whereby kids' wheelie shoes are banned, but six-inch knives are fine, provided they're strapped to a Sikh. Welcome to the crazy world of religious privilege. It's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it, that they bent over backwards for them. I mean, it says in there it's only worn by a minority of Sikhs anyway, so God knows why the hell they bent over backwards for them, because you're talking about a minority of a minority in, in Britain, and mm. they've bent over backwards for them so that a couple of them can wear a bloody weapon into the country, which I find absolutely ridiculous. Mm. <laughs> Small it's... subset of Sikhs. It's the Amrit Hardy Sikhs who make up fewer than 10% of all Sikhs. Mm. There we go. The uncritical privileging of religious ideas also renders us renders us incapable of calling out bigotry and intolerance when it masquerades as faith. I agree with you, National Secular Society of Britain. Mm, absolutely. Other crazy exemptions going on in the world is UNESCO. Uh, they say <laughs> that you know, various United Nations bodies, and I mean there's obviously thousands of UN bodies of this and that, and UNESCO is about heritage sites. The UN's always saying how gender equality is one of its top priorities. But Megan Manson says it's protecting, this is UNESCO, 
misogynistic attitudes by awarding World Heritage status to religious sites that practice sexual discrimination. Um, so, uh, if they're so concerned about women's equal rights, why are they providing World Heritage status to these religious sites that exclude women? One of which is Mount Athos in Greece, a complex of East Orthodox monasteries. Mount Athos has a strict ban on women to apparently make living in celibacy easier for men who have chosen to do so. The female sex so terrifies the monks that even female animals are banned, apart from female cats, insects and songbirds, which are acceptable. <laughs> Look out if you're a female cat in that monastery, Scott. <laughs> It really does. It does bigger belief, doesn't it? It's mm. you know, the UN is supposed to be all about gender equality and all that sort of stuff, but UNESCO is putting religious privilege above. <sighs> How hard would it be to say to these guys, you know what? I'd love to give you world heritage status. Just let women in. And we'll exactly. You. exactly. The other example is Mount uh, Omine in Japan, the site of the holiest temple in the Shugendo religious tradition. There is a sign at the entrance to the mountain path written in Japanese and English telling women that they are prohibited according to religious tradition. The reasons given for this are to do with keeping the male Shugendo pilgrims away from distractions or to prevent the female mountain deities from getting jealous of the women or a taboo on menstruation as it makes women unclean. So that particular site, there's been multiple challenges to the ban on women. And every year, female activists, and on occasion, a male activist who dresses as a woman, breach the ban and climb the mountain to the condemnation of the local authorities. Mm. In terms of this male protester, uh, three cheers for Masayo Yamaguchi, a 64-year-old mountain trekker from Nara said he feels ashamed of being a Nara citizen as the prefecture has failed to address this discrimination. In protest, he sometimes treks up Mount Omine, dressed in women's clothing, wearing his wife's red suit, makeup, earrings and a necklace. (laughs) (laughs) Priests who saw him debated whether he was a man or a woman. I said to them in falsetto... Does it matter if I'm a man or a woman? He explained. Climbs <laughs> <laughs> the mountain in his wife's dress, makeup, earrings, and necklace, and speaks in a falsetto voice. Good on you, Masayo Yamaguchi. Yeah, you well are done. a true you, you, protester. You, yeah, you're, yeah, you're brilliant. Yes, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Scott, uh, I love a good theory. Uh, pirate theory is an, is is one that is. I've been reading about in this article uh, by this guy, uh, David Sloan Wilson. went to a conference and he also was looking at this book called The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economies of Pirates. Um, And in it, um, the concept of self-interest and how that works in our society, but sort of, and using pirate society as a, microcosm of our bigger society and how we as humans uh, think and act 
And here we go, Scott. Here are some facts about pirate society that cry out for explanation. Did you get to read this one? I don't know. Obviously, you you, you, got into you the did detail. send it to me, but I no, I sent it I, to I, I skimmed it. it. I didn't yeah. completely read it. Yeah. But you know, we think of uh, pirate societies uh, as pretty vicious societies. But what it says mm. here is. Um, Famous for their barbarism towards their victims, it's easy to assume that pirates must also be barbarous among themselves, but nothing is further from the truth. Most pirate societies were scrupulously democratic. They voted on who was to be their captain and were quick to vote him out if he didn't perform. They limited the authority of the captain to battle situations and elected another officer, the quartermaster, to oversee the daily round of life on board. The captain and quartermaster received a mere two shares of captured booty compared to one share for each member of the crew. A significant proportion of pirate crews were black, and while some were slaves, others were treated as equals. Pirates created an insurance system for themselves with an agreed-upon payment for the loss of each body part. Um... Goes on to say, while their fearsome behaviour towards victims was real, it was highly strategic, uh... Um, the aim was to capture ships without fighting, so they put on a, a pretty ugly front, hoping that people would just give in, is what it would say. And, uh, um, and okay, so then this article sort of goes on to say, because uh, remember, Scott, we talked about the chicken breeding yeah. um, exercise, which I thought was really interesting. So just to recap, yeah. dear listener... If you were trying to um, breed chickens um, that laid the most number of eggs, you might be inclined to just take the, the, the best breeding chicken and breed from that and look at the progeny and then find the best layer out of that and breed from that. And the problem was that often the best layer was the complete bully who was in fact stealing food from the other chickens and and... If you followed that system, you could end up within six or seven generations with a with basically just a bunch of psychopathic chickens. And the other option was to have groups of, say, ten chickens and then breed from the group which best performed because you knew that the members in the group were actually working in harmony with each other. So I actually said that on, when I was at uh, a Christmas function. I met a guy who worked in a chicken farm, Scott, and yeah. he'd, never, he'd never heard of that before. Oh, so, really? Okay. Yeah, it was news to him. Okay. So, um, uh, and the article is making the point that this is the difference between humans and animals to some extent because in most animal societies, dominance takes the form of stronger individuals intimidating the weaker these societies would be called despotic in human terms and they provide an inhospitable social environment for cooperation. So that's in most animal societies. Somehow, in our distant ancestors, members of groups found ways to collectively suppress disruptive self-serving behaviours which provides a more hospitable social environment for cooperation. Um... So if you can't succeed at the expense of others within your own group, the only alternative is to cooperate within your group in competition with other groups, which might take the form of direct competition, such as warfare, or indirect competition, such as surviving during hard times as other groups perish. So 
This actually um, befuddled Darwin, apparently, with his theory of evolution, Scott. Um, he was forced to develop... Because what he looked at was he saw that, that in fact, humans have, um, have developed what's called pro-social behaviours. So a pro-social behaviour is any attitude, behaviour or institution oriented towards the welfare of others or of one's group as a whole. And natural selection that was just based on the individual um, uh, couldn't account for these pro-social behaviours that humans developed. So he had to... um, uh, Let me just get to the bit here. For Darwin, the problem he faced was that natural selection among individuals within groups cannot explain the evolution of pro-social behaviours. So according to sort of Darwin's first, you know, thoughts on the subject, we, we should have just grown up to be like the psychopathic chickens, where they're just the biggest and strongest and just killing each other. So how did we end up not in that situation? And he added another level of natural selection um, among groups in a multi-group population. So... Um, uh, so, yeah, so basically the groups came about where people were prepared to make minor sacrifices for themselves in order to benefit the whole group and to cooperate. And those groups ultimately become more successful than other groups. So as a group, you can either outfight the uncooperative group or you will have stored enough food and grain... Uh, because of your cooperative methods that you will survive, you know, plagues or uh, bad times. So so this sort of um, group uh, s- sort of theory of evolution uh, was actually something that Darwin had to address and come up with. So, yeah, so, so we've... we've the sort of the chicken breeding exercise, um, humankind's um, basically... Um, like to form little villages and you had to be cooperative in your village um and yeah it was we uh, sort of evolution became a village versus village thing as much as an individual versus an individual thing so okay yeah so there we go if you're interested in that uh there's the article on it and and it's sort of saying that in terms of the pirates they this is a natural evolutionary thing for us to have these cooperative village type um, situations. So a pirate community, which essentially could have done whatever it wanted to, basically uh, um, used what we've been evolutionary programmed to use, which is a cooperative village. Yeah. Scott and dear listener, this article is from Medium, blog site or website, claiming that Australia's economy is a house of cards. And this uh, is by... um, uh, Who's it by? It's by Matt Burke, co-authored with Craig Tyndall. And this is going to go on for a little while. This is going to take 20 minutes or so. But it's a frightening number of statistics and information 
and it's basically spelling out doomsday for the Australian economy. So if you want to remain <laughs> blissfully unaware until it happens, then Turn off tune out now and see you on the next episode. But if you've got any interest in our economy or your own money or your own, your own investments or lack thereof, stay tuned for this. Um, okay. It is somewhat frightening, isn't it? Oh, it is. So he's a yeah. I recently watched the Federal Treasurer, Scott Morrison, proudly proclaim that Australia was in surprisingly good shape. Indeed, Australia has just snatched the world record from the Netherlands, achieving its 104th quarter of growth without a recession, making the achievement the longest streak for any OECD country since 1970. On the face of that, you'd think, ScoMo, you're right. We are in good shape. Record growth without a recession... Happy days, we're obviously in. This guy says, I was pretty shocked at the complacency because after 26 years of economic expansion, the country has very little to show for it. A quarter, for over a quarter of a century, our economy mostly grew because of dumb luck. Luck because our country is relatively large and abundant in natural resources, resources that have been in huge demand from a close neighbour, namely China. Gives a statistic, by the way, dear listener, there's all charts and statistics and links and supporting footnotes for all of this. Over one-third of all merchandise exports from this country go to China. As a whole, our economy has grown through a property bubble inflating on top of a mining bubble built on top of a commodities bubble driven by a China bubble. Unfortunately, the free ride is about to end. Uh, the Chinese banks are looking down the barrel of $1.7 trillion of bad debts. Um, and it's going to possibly be four times what the US banking losses were during the subprime crisis. And a hard landing for China is going to be a catastrophe for us. It says that... Uh, let me just go on here to the next highlighted bit. Uh, um, in terms of exports, um, steel, of course, is made from iron ore, Australia's biggest export and the, free, and the country's main driver of trade surplus and GDP growth. We're responsible for half the global iron ore exports by value. 81% of our iron ore goes to China. Uh, but they don't want it anymore because they don't need it. They've got huge stockpiles. They've got enough... S- iron ore sitting at their ports that they could build 13,000 Eiffel Towers just from what's sitting on the port. In the last six years, the price of iron ore has fallen 60%. So this is our major export we're talking about here. Our second biggest export is coal. Uh, We supply 38% of the world's demand. From 2008 to 2016, our exports increased by 49%, but the value collapsed by 38%. So we're exporting more for less. Um, You've got coking coal for the steel market, which we've already said uh, demands um, falling, and thermal coal for power stations. Uh, That, of course, is also uh, demand is dropping because of renewals. Scott? In April 2017, the United Kingdom experienced its first day without burning coal for electricity since the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. Really? That's incredible, isn't it? It is, yeah. 
first day without burning coal for electricity. They got their electricity from other things. Um, our top export market for coal is Japan, and there was a little bubble there because of the Fukushima disaster, causing them to shut down nuclear reactors and rely more on coal, but that's going to stop. Coal consumption is China, in China is dropping, um, and blind to the reality of all this, we're ramping up coal production. Uh, so that's iron ore and uh, coal. Oh, 2016 was a year that solar became cheaper than coal, with some countries generating electricity from sunshine for less than three cents per kilowatt hour, which is half the cost of coal power. And by October 2017, wind power has become cheaper than coal in India. It's cheaper for them to produce wind power. Mm. Um, And half the assets in the global coal industry are held by companies that are either in bankruptcy or don't earn enough to pay their interest bills. Uh, So the coal story is a disaster and we've got Scott Morrison sitting in Parliament wistfully holding or looking at a lump of coal and saying how great it is for us but it's all about to go down the tube Uh, and that's going to cost us $34 billion per annum in the current account with nothing to replace it it's just going to go and in all this time uh Australian companies, well, actually, since 2014, Australia's entire mining industry, which is completely dependent on China, has struggled to make any money at all. According to the Bureau of Statistics, the Australian mining industry, which includes coal, oil, gas, iron ore, blah, 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 made it... Uh, it had $179 billion in revenue, $171 billion in costs, um, a margin of three point nine percent. Not making any money. Yeah. Uh, so that's the mining story that we have been relying on. Our manufacturing has totally collapsed, uh, and that's even bef- without taking into account the recent Toyota and Holden closures. Um, our manufacturing as a share of GDP is on a par with places like Luxembourg. We just don't make anything anymore. Mm. Uh, we're just a service economy. Uh, now, where are we getting to? So the question is, if mining's been doing um, so poorly, how have we been managing to survive? And the answer is... How are we getting this growth? The answer is that um, it's the property bubble. Uh, He says here, a bubble that has lasted for 55 years and seen prices increase 6,556% since 1961. That can't be right. That would be, yeah. Making this the longest-running property bubble in the world. In 2016, Scott, 67% of Australia's GDP growth came from uh, the cities of Sydney and Melbourne um, fueling a runaway housing market. Um, 
a small area in the Sydney CBD to Macquarie Park, which is in the middle of an apartment building frenzy, contributed 24% of the country's entire GDP growth for 2016. Okay, here's the here's really... To show how crazy our property situation is, Scott, um, they did a study of cranes... Um, uh, 2017 between Sydney Melbourne and Brisbane there are now 586 cranes in operation with a total of 685 across all capital cities 80% of which are focused on building apartments there are 350 cranes in Sydney alone by comparison there are 28 cranes in New York <laughs> Sydney, this is the end of 2017, had 350 cranes building, mostly apartment buildings. New York had 28. San Francisco, 24. 40 in Los Angeles. There are more cranes in Sydney than Los Angeles, Washington, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Portland, Denver, Boston and Honolulu combined. Holy bloody hell. That's Jonathan, ridiculous, isn't Jonathan it? Tepper, one of the world's top experts in housing bubbles. Australia is the only country we know of where middle-class houses are auctioned like paintings. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, at the time of the global financial crisis, Australia's households were at 190% debt to net disposable income. Um, that was 50% more than American households. But things went really crazy. The government put further fuel on the fire by streamlining foreign investment review board so that temporary residents could purchase real estate without having to gain or rep- or report approval. Did you know that, Scott? So now it's... You, no, I, did, I wasn't aware of that. You, yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that you could be a temporary resident and get to, and be able to buy a property. Yeah. Yes. So that is what is fueling a lot of the property boom. Um, uh one could possibly argue that this move was cunningly calculated uh, as what could be possibly wrong in selling overpriced Australian houses to the Chinese. But what it's saying here is that these Chinese are borrowing from Australian banks using fake statements of foreign income. Uh, and often it's not particularly sophisticated. Australian banks are being tricked with photoshopped bank statements can, that can be bought online for as little as $20. So, if you're here, if you're a Chinese here on a student visa, you can just Photoshop a bank statement. We don't even have to do it yourself. Pay somebody $20 and you can have some fake bank statements and buy an apartment in Sydney on a temporary visa. This is happening. Uh, our employment, uh, the rise in house prices is not supported by employment or wage increases. Um, since 2008, the average weekly income has gone up $3 a year. So that's not fueling the increase in housing prices. Uh, it's foreign buying. Uh, so what they say, urban planners say that a median house price to household income ratio of of 3 uh or under is affordable. Okay, so if the house price is three hundred thousand, 
and the income you have is 100,000, that would be a ratio of three, so that's affordable. Um, four is moderately affordable. If you get up to five, you're seriously unaffordable. So $500,000 house, $100,000 gross income. Once you're above five, it's severely unaffordable. That's according to urban planners. Um, in Sydney, the current median house price is one point one seven million and the average household income is ninety one thousand so the ratio is thirteen and yeah, in Melbourne, and in so Melbourne it's nine more than double what's considered unaffordable correct mm. um, now here's the interesting part Barnaby Joyce recently said Look, houses will always be incredibly expensive if you can see the Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Just accept that. What pe- This is Barnaby Joyce. What people have got to realise is that houses are much cheaper in Tamworth. Houses are much cheaper in Armadale and houses are much cheaper in Toowoomba. Sound OK on the face of it, Scott? Yeah, but there's no bloody work up there. Well, here's the kicker. For 2017, Tamworth ranked as the 78th most unaffordable housing market in the world. <laughs> the average income is t- in Tamworth is 42,900. The average uh, household income is 61,000, but the average house price is 375,000. So the ratio is 6.1, making housing in Tamworth less affordable than Tokyo, Singapore, Dublin or Chicago. Unfortunately for Barnaby, Armadale and Toowoomba don't fare much better. Out of a total of 406 housing markets tracked globally, uh, eight of the 20 least affordable housing markets were in Australia, which, in addition to Sydney and Melbourne, such exotic places as Wingkarari, Wingkarabi, Tweedheads, the Sunshine Coast, Port Macquarie, the Gold Coast and Wollongong. These are not exotic locations. No, you wouldn't have thought so. So anyway, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Chinese uh, temporary residents can buy apartment buildings on dodgy um, $20 photoshopped bank statements. Um, Our big four banks issue 80% of residential mortgages in this country and they're more exposed uh, to these loans than any other banks in the world. Um, 60% of Australian bank loans are residential mortgages. Uh, Going through here. Why are governments so keen to inflate housing prices? And the answer is it's the only thing that's stimulating GDP growth. Uh, also, 42% of all mortgages in Australia are interest only, since the average person can't actually afford to pay any principal. Um, so, Scott, the big four banks plus Macquarie are 30% of the ASX 200 index weighting. Ooh. And, you know, a lot of our superannuation goes into the share market and Mm -hmm. that's 30% of the share market. 
once this episode is recorded, Scott, I'm, I'm going onto my superannuation account and just making sure I've got absolutely no exposure to Australian banks. <laughs> it's, it's going international. <sighs> A bit further on. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Um, our third largest export, which is $22 billion, is education-related travel services. So um, you now know what all these tin-pot English IT and business colleges that have popped up downtown are about. They're not about providing quality education. They are about gaming the immigration system. He says here, um, while the federal government recently removed around 200 occupations from the school occupation list, including GEMS, such as amusement centre manager, betting agency manager, goat <laughs> farmer, dog or horse racing official, pottery or ceramic artist, and parole officer. So these were just recently removed as yeah. skilled occupations. You can still immigrate to Australia as a naturopath, baker, cook, librarian, or dietitian. Until recently, we were importing... Migration agents. <laughs> ah. uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the temporary residents on student visas who are buying apartments. Um, uh, as I said before, these are from basically Chinese investment, uh, Chinese investors. Um, the total number of foreign investment review board approvals from China was 30,611. By comparison, the United States had 481. Sorry, that was 13,000? So, so that was, this is uh, foreign investment review board approvals. So people from yeah. China buying property in Australia needing approval was 30,000. In yeah. comparison, the United States had 491. Mm. Uh, getting money out of China is getting more difficult. Um, so Chinese are bringing cash across in suitcases. Um, uh, Lend-Lease reported, so they're you know apartment builder, 40% of their apartment sales are to foreigners. Um, what they're finding is... Um, 30 to 40% of foreign purchases are now being cash settled. Actually turning up the suitcases. Yeah, uh, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, what else have we got in interesting statistics? Oh, finally, Scott. The government collects... So he's saying, well, how's our, where are we getting money from if things are so bad? Um, uh, like our company tax hasn't moved from $68 billion in the last three years. Our companies are not making more profits. Um, the government collects more tax from cigarettes, that's $9.8 billion, than it collects from tax on superannuation, which is $6.8 billion, mm. over double what it collects from the fringe benefit tax and 13 times more tax than it does from our oil fields. Scott, company tax was $68 billion. Mm. Tax from cigarettes was $9.8 billion. 
Yeah. <sighs> this is, the forecast is that by 2020, we'll be getting $15.2 billion from taxes on tobacco. Four times the amount we get from the entire coal industry. <laughs> Double what we'll get from petrol excise. 20 time, 21 times more than from luxury car tax. By the way, we've got all these taxes on cars for luxury cars, high import duty, stamp duty, luxury car tax, all designed to protect the car manufacturing industry, which doesn't exist That's anymore. Gone. But the, exactly. taxes are still, yeah. the taxes are still there. Mm-hmm. So taxes on cigarettes is the only thing practically floating the federal government's finances. <laughs> and this guy's saying, well, how's that going to continue? A product that costs a cent per stick to make and will retail for almost $2 a stick How's that going to continue without creating a thriving black market? <sighs> and that's the major things that I got through. But, Scott, that's a really, really worrying trend. And, dear listener, if you've got a whole, you know, don't take financial advice from a podcaster. This is not financial advice. But just go and see a financial advisor who's, who's not... Uh, motivated to put you into property and just ask whether you know you should still be there or not just double check <laughs> worry isn't it scott it is a real worry yeah for mm. sure mm. you know it's um it's a hell of a worry actually mm. well there we have it dear listener that's the episode of 128 um <laughs> Just sorry to leave you on such a downward na- na- down notice but anyways so. indeed yeah so um we're looking forward to a bigger and brighter 2018 podcast, wise Scott. So, um, any New Year's resolutions that you got uh, you want to share with people or anything like that? I don't make New Year's resolutions because I never stick to them. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, um, I'm going to try and paint a bit more. I sell art supplies and I do yeah. a little bit of painting and I'm, I, I should be more specific about it. I should say I'm going to paint at least something every week. But there right, we go. Right, okay. Um, but, yeah. All right, dear listener, so well, look thanks. Look out for Trevor's uh, artwork, which will be on sale before too long. Yeah, if you see a funny sort of um, picture used as our sort of picture for a post, it might be because it's a piece of my artwork that I've done. So there you go. <laughs> All right, Scott. Well, dear listener, thanks for tuning in. and uh, Thank you very much us. for listening in. Yeah, stay yep. with us for 2018, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Cheers. Bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from 
a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.